is Mechanically Incorrect, a science, engineering, and education podcast like no other, where we talk the good, the bad, and ugly of academia, industry, and research. Mechanically Incorrect is a podcast conceived by the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the FAMU FSU College of Engineering in Tallahassee, Florida. Views expressed are solely those of each speaker, and we mean that. I'm Neil Coker. Let's talk shop. So, uh, today we have a very special guest with us. Um, we are speaking with uh, Assistant Professor Dr. Taylor Higgins, originally from Simpsonville, South Carolina. Dr. Higgins attended Clemson University for her BS in Mechanical Engineering. In 2022, she graduated from the University of Notre Dame with a PhD in Mechanical Engineering. Dr. Higgins' dissertation work specifically aims to identify human gait, speed, and tensions for lower limb exoskeletons. After Notre Dame, she took a postdoc position at UT Austin, and uh, she's now working on um, uh, as an assistant professor with us here at FSU in Tallahassee, where she's continuing her work to increase the fluency of a broad spectrum of human-slash-robot interactions. And um, that is straight from the Syscore website. Taylor, welcome. It's so nice to meet you in person. Um, for, uh, so it, it, this is very much so an intro for me because we just met for the first time today, although we've been exchanging emails for months and I've been getting little snippets of the, the work that you um, have been getting set up to do. Um, so we're so glad to have you. Um, Billy, you got any thoughts? No, I'm just glad to have you here. Looking forward to... Um just figuring out how you started, how you ended up here. So maybe, you know, I, lo- I know a little bit, but I guess, was it South Carolina where you grew up? Is that where you were born? Yeah, yeah. So I started out in Simpsonville, South Carolina, somewhat of a, a suburb of a bigger city called Greenville. Uh, okay. And from there, decided to go to Clemson, stay in state for undergrad, which was a great decision because it, it got me plugged in with undergraduate research. Uh, so I, I was a part of a, an orthopedics development lab for about four years at Clemson. And then when I decided to make the leap to grad school, I decided I was pretty interested in robots and wanted to see how robots and humans uh, coexist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I told you before we got started, I, I read your PhD thesis. And so one of the things that I looked at were the, uh, in the beginning, so the acknowledgments. So, um, oh, dear. I can really tell that, you know, if we back up from, you know, your your work at Clemson, the things, even maybe if we go from being born in South Carolina <laughs> to fifth grade and uh, the things with your, I think, with your mom and uh, some of the classes and what what's the uh, thing with the space shuttle? That's uh, that's an interesting place to start. <laughs> Fairly personal place to start. Uh, I'm in the dark here. What, what do you mean by the thing with the space shuttle? Yeah, so maybe to back up a little bit, it kind of all surrounds the gifted program in elementary school. So uh, when I was growing up, there's there's the gifted program, and so every every day, I think it was actually just once a week, they separate out the students who are quote unquote gifted uh, from the mainstream class, and they go learn yeah, I about. I remember that. Yeah, they go do. arguably more interesting things for an hour or two, and then they come back. Uh, So that always captured my interest, and apparently they start testing for this pretty young to determine whether or not you are gifted. And I guess I I was overachieving as as a little tailor, and I did not make the, the cut for gifted, which 
kind of confused my teachers and my parents a little bit uh, based on my interests and my uh, excitement about school in general. So for a while there, I was not in gifted but really wanted to be and wanted to be learning about things outside of just normal everyday school. So my mom said, all right, we don't need the gifted program. We'll we'll get you doing research. <laughs> we'll have you looking up whatever it is you want to learn about and, and we can support you through, you know, new assignments that we create ourselves. So I decided that I was super interested in the space shuttle. I actually attended space camp uh, after the fifth grade, and and so I wanted to know everything about how the shuttle worked. And so that was one of the things I started uh, just looking up as an elementary schooler. So that is interesting. It reminds me when I was in kindergarten. um, So at least they have that when, when you were going through this, even though maybe it didn't work out the way you thought. <clears throat> or hope. So um, when I got done with the kindergarten, you had to take, it was my first excursion into aptitude test. So I had to take a, a test to figure out what level, that, you know, they had like three levels in first grade. So I'd take this aptitude test and I bombed it. And so they put me in the lowest first grade class and like for the first couple of weeks I was doing color by number. It was like first ten minutes, and then I'd sit there bored to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, my my parents, you know, talked to the teachers and got me in the other class, which um, at first was hard because then I was like, oh, I have to do math, uh, <laughs> so I had to catch up. But then it's not all baseball. Nah, first grade, not not quite. Um, so you know. Then it was okay, but these aptitude tests kept coming up later. You know, uh, I was never good at those, but it clearly shows there's there's other ways to be successful um, besides uh, multiple choice tests. Yeah, and I'm assuming both of you went to public school as well, from the sound of things. Yeah, because that's exactly was my experience as well. I also was just under the bar for gifted, okay, so okay. I got to witness the VIP kids leaving halfway through the day and then coming back looking like they had a grand old time. It's so disheartening uh, as a child. <laughs> it is. Like, um, I th- my understanding is I don't know. I don't have children, uh, Billy. You you have. Uh, kids who are both almost completely grown at this point who've been through it um and your observation has the public school system gotten a bit more intellectually inclusive i don't know how else to phrase it uh or is it better it, it seems to be I, I have friends who are uh two teachers in the k-12 system and it seems to be that um that one of the the things that have, has improved in public education you know, over the past several decades is that they have gotten more focus on individualized learning and less about you know trying to to make everyone fit a certain mold that is not suited for everyone's learning style. Um, I learned as an adult. I didn't really realize until I was already grown that I'm a visual learner, which is funny because I have really bad eyesight, <laughs> but um, but I'm a visual learner and. I've never been, I've, unlike both of you, I've never been particularly great. I've never been a math person. It's, again, kind of funny because part of what I do for my job is crunch numbers. But, um, but I'm not particularly naturally adept at math. But maybe if I had had a teacher that had been able to teach me on my terms, maybe, I, you know, maybe uh, things would be different. So um, it's just, it, it is a humbling fact to know that, you know, that you weren't immediately from the outset uh, determined to be a, 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 a shining star, whatever you want to call it. But you, 
as Billy said, you, you, you pushed yourself and found other ways to be successful, and here you are. And I think there's a lesson in that, I hope, for uh, any of our students listening that uh, may not always feel that, you know, they're where they need to be. So you said your parents got you into these, I guess, like summer things or after school things? How, how did that develop? I. It was it was much less formal than that. <laughs> it yeah. was it was really just developing in, in me this uh, this way of questioning about how things work and uh, going and finding that information myself. So okay. internet's really taken off at that time. I had a computer at probably too young of an age, but uh, you can find out a lot of stuff on the, on the internet. Not that everything was completely helpful for a child learning about the space shuttle at that point, but. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, my my dad and this comes out later in that uh, that thesis intro too. Is this is, hanging out at Lowe's? Yeah, my my dad was always building something, and I, I come from a family that had a lot of engineers. Like my dad, his dad, my dad's brother, my mom met dad at engineering school. It was it's strongly in my blood, and so. So where'd your dad go to go go to engineering school? He went to Georgia Tech. Oh, it's a pretty good one. I, I've heard it is, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Dad was always building something, whether it was furniture or, uh, you know, keeping up with our home that was, you know, a 20-year-old home when we moved in. And, and he always was so great at involving us at whatever age we were uh, in all of those projects. So he likes to tell this funny story about taking out a stump in the backyard when my brother was about three or four and, you know, they have kids' play sets where there's, like, a, a plastic shovel and a plastic, everything you'd need for gardening. And so Dad's, you know, hitting the stump with the axe, and there's chips flying everywhere, and Andrew's standing well back, and then Dad gets tired. He says, okay, Andrew, take over. And so Andrew takes his little his little plastic implements, and he whacks at the stump, and, of course, there's spare chips sitting on the stump, so it looks like he's doing an amazing job. Uh, so that always got me and my brother involved is just my dad's way of bringing us into every task he was doing and that I really latched on to that um, and so the story you're referring to is uh, when my brother went to college at Clemson he was supposed to have ordered a loft for himself to loft his bed but there was an issue with the order and it didn't come through and so at the last minute he's without a lofted bed so he can't set up his room the way he really wants to and so my dad's like okay well, we can build a loft easy enough. So we, we go to Lowe's, and I'm hanging around helping Andrew move into Clemson, and so he brings me into the design process of building a loft and where it needs to be structurally strong, where the supports are versus how heavy it's going to be, and I I fell in love with engineering at that point. So your brother, older brother? Yep. Okay, okay. Yeah. So he first went to Clemson engineering also? <laughs> yeah, mechanical as well, Okay, too. Yeah. okay. Yeah, so that's got to be interesting at Thanksgiving, sitting around, <laughs> talking, shop. It, it can get a little nerdy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, I have, uh, obviously, some, some questions about um, you know how this all, how your general interest in science and engineering and the space shuttle, and how that progressed to where you're at today. Um, when did you develop an interest in uh, robotics and control systems? Uh, that's a great question. I I always had a background interest in robotics, but I didn't actually pursue robotics until I made the switch from Clemson to University of Notre Dame for my, my graduate studies. So 
like I said, I'd been working in more of the human biomechanics, somewhat of a more clinical side of, of the problem. I was debating about whether I wanted to get my pre-med requisites so that I could potentially um, become an orthopedic surgeon, um, decided that I really liked designing and building new things as opposed to uh, implementing devices in everyday life. Um, so I, I decided to stick with engineering, and then the research really captured my interest, so I, I decided that grad school was probably a good option for me to keep up with the research. And when you make the switch from undergraduate research to graduate research, you have a kind of an opportunity to make a leap like that where you have background in research, but you can go do you know any other research that you might be interested in. So I, I decided to really push on the human technology uh, com- combo side of things, especially the, the robotics. Um, I think a big push for me to pursue that area was um, some childhood experiences with my mom. So she is a type 1 diabetic, and so uh, her mom was also a type 1 diabetic, and, and technology has changed vastly between when my mother's mom um, was dealing with the disease to, to today. And a lot of that developed throughout my childhood uh, so one of the things that came out is just the ability to test your blood sugar on a little device that you can have around the house. Uh, my mom's mom didn't have that, but my mom did. Uh, then we got the continuous um, insulin pump, which means that you don't have to have shots every couple of hours. You can kind of get a, a low level of insulin injection all day long. It helps you stay a little more regular in your blood sugar levels. And then we got the continuous glucose monitor, which means you don't have to prick your fingers anymore. It's a sensor that you uh, attach, stays on for three days, and uh, you get updates basically every three minutes. So seeing how those technologies um, eased some of our fears and, and changed the way that my mom was able to pursue her daily activities. She's an extremely active lady. Um, I, I was amazed at how technology can change someone's life, and I wanted to be a part of that. Yeah, it is pretty cool to see those things develop. So when I was at that other engineering school you mentioned, um, (laughs) I was studying smart materials. I was always interested in the bio side. So my undergrad, you had options to do the senior design, different areas. So mine was bioengineering, angioplasty pump. But then later, grad school, um, there was a group doing microneedles so they could make these hollow microneedles and they were using them to get through the first dermal layers. It, apparently the first dermal layer is the one that provides the best protection before you can get drugs into the body. So I said, oh, we can make an active patch for insulin. Um, and so we pursued that a little bit um, through, uh, you know, talking to venture capitalists, you know, just exercise of... Um, pursuing startups in grad school and I had to make this decision on do I want to get a PhD or or start this thing and well you know here I am but it was really amazing to see the development since then on the the feedback the pumps the glucose monitoring you know my wife's a nurse so she that's the students that you know she watches out for the most is the, the ones with diabetes and so that constant feedback is really good to just get so you're aware of you know what you're eating so you can you have a little bit more control on on things which seems to be really useful so you don't have to worry about those things as much and go on about your your daily life 
Yeah, and um, I just want to thank you for sharing that very personal detail with us because that resonates with me. I'm actually um, in the type 2 range, so I'm not currently on any insulin, but I do take blood sugar medications every day. I also take um, uh, blood pressure medications because, you know, they're they're kind of interconnected to a certain extent and it's one of those things where i yeah i think about the future a lot and hoping about you know obviously i i want to keep it under control but um it is a lot of as of right now uh, it takes a lot of personal initiative to keep up with it and there are even though i'm still able to live a mostly normal life it's one of those things where um I wish I didn't have to take all these pills all the dang time. And I wish yeah. that there so the, these sort of technological solutions that do seem to be improving, you know, in our relatively short lifetimes does give me a lot of hope. And um, knowing that that's what kind of piqued your interest in getting you into the bioassisted side, um, that definitely uh, engenders a lot of respect on my end uh, because I think we need more people like you doing this exact kind of research to, um, to, especially as diabetes um, is becoming more prevalent across the globe, but especially in developed countries. Um, it's something that uh, I think will need to be reckoned with on a major scale because, you know, anyone there's a whole politics behind this with the cost of insulin and the like, and I'm not sure that there's any one-size-fits-all solution for everyone. But um, I do think it's something that's going to have to be addressed more broadly in the years to come. So we need innovative solutions um, to these issues. Um, but so th- that, that, that answers a follow-up question I had about, you know, how you got into the biomedical side. But um, so how specifically now have you made the leap from <laughs> an interest in observation with, you know, advancements in, in diabetes um, mitigation to... Um, bio-assisted exoskeletons i mean that's that's really we're we're getting into like i grew up watching a lot of sci-fi and anime and stuff we're getting into talking about cyborgs which i got on a bit of a tangent when we spoke with christian and uh dr grizzle from university of michigan um some months back talking about cyborgs it's just one of those (laughs) things that excites me so i was excited to talk to you uh, about this and learn more about how you got into this but yeah and so so how did that happen yeah, that's a great question because they, they are <laughs> kind of vastly different fields in some respects. For sure. Uh, yeah, so it, speaking of cyborgs, I usually try to start out big presentations about my work with a clip from Iron Man because I, I like to claim that I, I am Iron Woman or <laughs> maybe Taylor Stark <laughs> to some degree. Uh, so, yeah, so where did where did the walking and, and lower limb assistive robotics come in? Um I, I think the walking aspect came in in my undergraduate research at Clemson. So the, the first lab that I joined, like I said, was an orthopedics lab. But I, they were specifically looking at the time at uh, gait changes due to arthrodesis of the knee. So this is when, um, due to various reasons, you might have your knee fused such that there's no longer a knee joint. Um, this can happen when you have... Uh, recurrent total knee replacements because every time you have a total knee replacement they take out more material so at some point you can't do another one and so in order to save the limb and some usefulness you you fuse the joint and so we were looking at how gait changes after after a a procedure like that so I started out in gait and learning about biomechanics and I loved how uh, biomechanics was this perfect marriage of mechanical engineering and the human body uh, 
it, it really was in the wheelhouse of mechanical engineering. I loved that aspect. So I kind of stuck to walking. Uh, and then, like I said, I was, I was somewhat open when I made the move from Clemson to graduate school about what exactly I was going to work on. And I, I found a lab at Notre Dame that was looking specifically at what bipedal robots can tell us about human walking and what human walking can tell us about how we can better program bipedal robots. And I thought, oh, that, that's beautiful. That's really in- exciting. And then I, I spoke to, uh, that was Jim Schmiedler's lab, uh, and he reached out to me um, discussing the potential of my joining his lab, and he said that he had a project on exoskeletons. And I was like, exoskeletons, that's cool. <laughs> it, it has that wow factor of how, how can you not be excited about exoskeletons? What can you tell us about the history of powered exoskeletons and how, how because this is something that's, you know, obviously conceptually existed, uh, you know, in, in speculative fiction going back like a hundred years or more, I'm sure. Um, but I don't know how much, it, my understanding is in the past two or three decades, it's grown considerably as a field, but, um, but what can you tell us about um, how that field has progressed since, uh, I guess, since you started working in it and um, your observations as to where we're heading in the immediate future? I realize that's probably several questions packed into one, but <laughs> if you can make sense of it, I want to hear your, your your views on this. Maybe maybe I'll target the questions I have better answers for. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> uh, so I'll be honest, I don't, I don't know in the complete history of, you know, the conception of the idea of a robotic exoskeleton and how it's shown up in, in literature through the ages. Uh, I, I don't even have a really great answer for exactly which robotic developments happened when, uh, but I can speak to, I think, where we are now and where we'd like to go. Uh, so specifically referring to my PhD work, I worked with the ExoGT, which is created by ExoBionics, uh, a company out in California, uh, that device is specifically intended for rehabilitation purposes. So someone who has had a spinal cord injury uh, will sometimes need to do um, uh, over-treadmill over walking training. Uh, so essentially you, ha- you have this individual in a weight-supporting harness, and then therapists or therapeutic aids actually move the human body through the movements of walking so that this individual can practice that that task over and over and over again and so the robot comes in in order to take away some of the 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 work involved in moving in a person's limbs through the movements of walking so it takes fewer therapists to do this type of therapy and it gets you off the treadmill so the exogt uh is untethered so you can get in the device and and walk around uh, an office space uh, so th- there are intended robots f- for rehabilitation, in, in which case we sometimes can make some assumptions about the environment that these robots are going to be existing in. And so we have robots that can do uh, walking on flat ground. We can go from sit to stand. Uh, we can change certain aspects about the, the gate itself, like uh, how long it takes to do a swing action. Um, but in general, where I think we're, we're lacking is using these devices in, in real life, out in unstructured environments. So in, during activities of daily living, maybe in someone's home where there are lots of obstacles and where we don't actually spend a lot of time doing straight line walking. Um, so that, that's where I'm really interested in, in pushing forward is taking these devices out of the lab, out of the clinic, away from straight line walking uh, towards more activities of daily life. 
Um, and uh, as that uh, as it relates to the practical um, applications of this technology, what are the uh, I guess the limitations that you've noticed regarding, say, for instance, like the power systems and the like, because uh, obviously we're, we're talking very sophisticated technology, which, as we as we can observe, um, the more sophisticated technology is, uh, is, the more apt it can be to fail on us at critical moments. So, uh, have you noticed any uh, real? challenges to that effect as far as like why we why has this not been made available at market um uh, more uh, broadly than it currently has uh there there are so many challenges yeah so we can talk about the hardware challenges like getting a motor that is strong enough but light enough that it it's not onerous to carry around on your body um we can talk about uh, the control aspects, uh, which is where I'm a little bit more interested in, is how do you even determine what it is the human is wanting to accomplish? Uh, so when we do overground straight line walking, we know they're trying to walk, or we can assume that they're trying to walk. But when you go into an, an unstructured environment, you, you somehow have to read the human's mind about, uh, are you trying to sit? Are you trying to stand? Are you trying to pivot? Are you trying to sidestep? How do we read the human's mind in order for the exoskeleton to actually implement that assistive strategy that will allow them to accomplish that task? Are there any kind of neural link um, <laughs> components? I mean, I know I'm getting like really like getting really heavy into the cyborg aspect of this year, <laughs> but um, I mean, I don't know if there's any kind of um, uh, what do they call those things? They 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 put all over you at the doctor's office, like electrodes. That, electrodes. Thank yeah. you. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Is there any kind of electrode based? Um, uh, Definitely components that can go with the um, the the mobility um, aspect uh, of this um, of the overall contraption. I mean, at this point, we're talking like a full body assistive structure. But there are people for whom I mean, we we have paraplegics. There are people for whom there's a real need for something like that. Absolutely, that that's life changing. And I understand there's there's been some research done on this over the past several decades, um, but I don't know how. Uh, how uh, much uh, your own work um, involves that. So, Yeah, so that there are definitely groups that are looking at sensing the human from an electrical perspective uh, in a variety of ways. So there are invasive strategies where you might put a chip in the brain that measures directly on the brain electrical activity related to the desire to create certain movements. Um, and then we can move also into the non-invasive space where we use, a, a lot of times uh, we use electromyography, which are the electrodes that you put over the top of a muscle, uh, just on the skin. So completely non-invasive. And you can measure electrical potentials related to the contraction of that muscle. And that can sometimes tell you about how the user is trying to move. Um, unfortunately, EMG often has a lot of noise. Um, it's fairly difficult to set up. So if you were to have an exoskeleton that someone is taking home, they would need to know exactly where to put that electrode. And and even, even if they put it in the exact right spot, the measurements that you get from that muscle might be very different one day to the next. So that can cause some issues with how we model and control the exo based on that signal. Uh, people have also looked at using exterior EEG, so electroencephalography, making me use my big words today. <laughs> so this is electrical measurement over the, the scalp related to, to brain, brain potentials. Uh, 
unfortunately, that also is plagued by some pretty big noise. It seems like a, a really excellent dynamics and control problem, and also inference. I know you've mentioned like Bayesian inference every once in a while. Yep. And, you know, if you stick these electrodes on the surface of the body, you get very sparse information on what's really going on, right? Um, even kind of like what Neil was referring to, whether it's neural link, whether you're going to get to that point. You know, some would even argue uh, a few, and we've, I think, had these discussions on free will and intent <laughs> and whether that's just a sensation we have and can you then just formulate it as electrical signals. And um, So I'm, I'm curious, it seems like to me that you're going to have sparse information and you got to fill in the holes from that to move the exoskeleton in the way that you're predicting the human is going to move. So what's the balance there, or what? where is the exoskeleton technology with taking the sparse information and, I guess, building a model of what you can't measure and then doing some kind of control on the motors. Is that where chat GPT comes in? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, we've had those discussions. Taylor can probably explain on just where exoskeletons are, and you have to have, I think, two people around the person just to test these things out. So, no, I don't think chat GPT is going to replace that anytime soon. There's huge challenges. But, you know, on on that side of measurement and modeling where where is that sit right now and what are the next things you're going to look at yeah there i the question of modeling is is definitely one that a lot of people are working on because human body is very difficult to model you can you can model it as a robotic system but once the user changes their mind about their what what they're trying to do your, your model sometimes goes out the window <laughs> uh so it is very difficult um and it is different between human exo modeling versus autonomous robot modeling. There are a lot of added challenges when you throw the human into the mix. Uh, so one of the things that I think is an exciting way forward is to combine what we know from robotics, these really good analytical physics-based models, with some of the advancements in machine learning that we've seen everywhere um, so I like to think of it as a gray box model. So if we say that a, a maybe a deep learning strategy is black box because we, we only know the inputs to the system and the outputs to the system and what happens in between is completely unknown to us. Uh, whereas an analytical model, we know the inputs, we know the outputs, and we know everything about how those inputs are related to the outputs. I'd consider that a, a white box model. And I think strategies for combining those two are going to be really important for human-robot interaction. Um, I don't think we want to throw what we know about physics out the window and go completely machine learning. Um, I also don't think we want to dismiss machine learning as a really valuable tool. Uh, so combining those, I think, is is where we're going. I mean, it seems like to me the, the phase seems to be important, that phase between taking that measurement and trying to predict where the next step's going to be um, and how do you... How do you, st- I guess, stay ahead of where you think the human wants to go? Yeah, yeah. The problem of doing things in, in real time and, and doing these predictions even, so predicting ahead of time, is very difficult. 
and in the intent inference space of research, there there is some of this ambiguity about whether we're sensing what the human is currently doing or what are we sensing what they are desiring to be doing maybe in the future. And it it does get really ambiguous uh, in that terminology, and it, it definitely is a difficult problem. So um, I'm really excited to be here at uh, FAMU FSU, uh, especially to work with Dr. Hubicki because he works on these real-time optimization problems uh, where we can expect very different behaviors to emerge naturally and in real time. And I think uh, that type of fast change of behavior is, is something we, we see in humans a lot. So I think there are ways to marry those two ideas. It seems like, too, you know, if, if, you're, if you're trying to just model a human gait, uh, you could build all these machine learning trained models and then try to you stick the exoskeleton on a person it seems like the dynamics is going to change quite a bit then and so just modeling human gait is maybe it'll get you part of the way there but then you got to compensate for this extra weight and this this robot that you're carrying around so what what do you do to where do you start do you (laughs) Do you start with the exoskeleton on? Do you try to take data of just human gates without it? Is there good understanding of how to make those adjustments? I don't think there's one right, right approach. Uh, in the thesis that you apparently read, which I'm very impressed by, it's not often you hear that someone read your dissertation. <laughs> uh, the last chapter of my thesis, or at least the last content chapter, I looked at how do we use optimization-based control strategies uh, to reason about uh, interacting with a human? And the way that I did it, at least, is I measured or I I modeled the combined human-robot system. So uh, the actual, let's say, thigh segment that I modeled was not just the mass of the exo, but it was the combined mass of the human and the exo. Uh, And we also need to make that step forward with the torques that we would expect. So the torque at each joint is not just the torque from the exoskeleton from the motors, but it's the combined torque of the exoskeleton and the human. Uh, So I made in in that chapter a little bit of a logical leap in that I assumed we magically knew what the torques that the human were going to apply were, uh, which is, is definitely not a solved problem in it in any way. Uh, but if we are given those torques, there are fun ways that we can reason about what should the exoskeleton do about those torques. So when you're talking about optimal control, is, is there a way to, um, you know, say if you just take the exoskeleton by itself, could you stick an optimal human in it? Like is there a target of here's the kinematics that's optimal? Um, and then you stick a human in it, and then you got a feedback based on they're not optimal, right? Is there a, a way to formulate that? Uh, I, yes, yes, and no. I like, like you said, humans are not always optimal. We we do certain things that sometimes optimize for certain parameters. Like we we try to be efficient. We try not to hurt ourselves. Um, but we we change our weights on on certain parameters all the time throughout throughout everyday life. So, for instance, I walk very differently when I'm walking to class and I'm late 
uh, not that I've ever been late to class, but no. uh, when I'm late to something <laughs> uh, versus when I'm, I'm taking a leisurely stroll with my husband and our dogs. Uh, and I, I can't say which of those two is optimal. Um, so I think even this idea of an, an optimal human gait is somewhat of a misnomer. Yeah, I guess it, you know, if you're really talking about, if we want to dig deep into LQR, right? <laughs> you got to define your Q and your R, right? Yes. Uh, and no human is going to agree on what those... What's the right Q and the right R. R right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, depends on the situation. But I, yes, I don't know how you'd go about that. Well, you need a setup that is... Uh, equipped for extreme high accuracy recordings, which is, um, I assume, part of why we've spent all this this money getting you um, sorted in the Cisco lab. <laughs> with uh, I'm looking at the uh, the sole source quote we had for the um, the motion capture suit we bought from through Movella. Um, it sounds like it, it th- th- this thing was designed uh, to answer some of those questions. Um, because it, it accounts for so many extreme variables, am I am I correct? I'm coming from a layman's perspective, and that's just seem, uh, seems to be the ballpark that we're in. No, absolutely, yeah. I'm I'm really excited about that device in particular because it lets us measure human movement out in the wild. So we think of motion capture a lot of times as you're in a studio where there are cameras mounted to the ceiling that are capturing in a very maybe not entirely small, but a relatively uh, small space of movement. And in that laboratory setting, people sometimes do things that they don't normally do in real life. And I I think where I'm most interested in is what do people do on a daily basis? What what is important during activities of daily living? And I think the, the motion capture suit that you're referring to will help me get at some of those questions because it doesn't require that studio setting. They're uh, on-body inertial measurement units. Uh, Can you I, explain what those are for lay people like myself? Because yeah. I, I, I saw that term, and I'm like, that sounds interesting, but I've never heard of it before. So I don't mean to interrupt your, your, your answer. but Yeah, I, inertial measurements, more commonly referred to as IMUs, are used in a lot of robotics applications that use uh, basically accelerometers, magnetometers, and gyros to, again, that's some other more technical terms that <laughs> maybe throw... I know some of those words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they use these these different types of sensors in order to measure the location and orientation of certain points in space. So, for instance, if I want to track human movement, I might put an IMU on my humerus or my upper arm segment. And this IMU can tell me what is at least the orientation of that segment in space. Uh, so this suit has lots of these IMUs that uh, are are attached to each of the rigid body segments of the human body uh, so we can back out that full body movement through space. And and as I was saying, I, I think that it's really powerful that we can take this particular suit out into into the world without without a studio. Do the um, exoskeletons you're going to be using, I assume they have some integrated sensors in them as well. And I guess that and, uh, you know, obviously the how you, maybe sensors in the feet. Um, So how will you fuse all this data? What will you do when you try to make assessments on all that data? Yeah, yeah, the question of 
how many sensors, which sensors, uh, where do we put those sensors? These are all active research questions. Um, so uh, like I said, a lot of people have used electromyography or EMG to, to measure the human. Um, often the EXO or the robotic device, whatever it is, not just EXOs, they will have IMUs to help you reason about where you are in space. Uh, we also can use encoders from the motors themselves to figure out what is the orientation of the robotic device, which may or may not correlate to the orientation of the human body. Um, what I'm curious about is, is moving to maybe a different set of sensors. So uh, there's been a lot of progress in computer vision in the past few years. Uh, and I am curious what new capabilities are possible if we add a camera to some of these assistive devices. So one of the projects I'm working on now is trying to reason about what the environment and the human's configuration and position within that environment tell us about what action is most likely. Uh, so an example I like to use is that humans pretty well understand that you're not supposed to sit unless there's a chair present. And if you try to, it's either going to look funny or it's going to end badly <laughs> in, in dangerous ways. Uh, so my I envision that with these cameras we can make inferences like, oh, I have these certain objects that allow me to do certain things, uh, and that can t give us a lot of insight. Yeah, I like that, that video you showed about a week ago. So I had the same question before I saw that video because my, my, my son finished middle school now, but I was thinking, yeah, at lunch some middle school kid starts to sit down and then the chair is yanked out. Right. So I thought that would be a really cool exoskeleton application if you could help some kid. When that chair gets yanked out, the exoskeleton just stops and he's right. halfway sitting. It's like, right. ah, it says, ah, this we've is got this covered. no longer appropriate action to be taking. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we're not there yet where you get the chair yanked out. Not quite. Uh, some groups have used computer vision to recognize the terrain that you're walking on. So things about the, the height of the, uh, the ground in front of you can give us uh, insights about how we control the next step, um, which is really cool and very applicable. But I, I'm interested in maybe looking at the world more broadly speaking, uh, like you said, about the objects that are there. Yeah. Hmm. So coming back, I'm, I'm curious about once you left Clemson, you kind of had this idea, maybe not exactly orthopedics, but you're interested in the bioengineering, biomechanics, exoskeleton. So once you got connected with the um, senior faculty at, um, at Notre Dame, so you were co-advised, I think. And so I'm, I'm curious how that got started and you know again I read in the acknowledgments so that sounded like it was a really good experience so how how did that come about how was that experience yeah I, I'm really glad you asked about that I I owe a lot to my advisors they they took a a really uh involved approach to to supporting me and and all of my my own goals for my my future so uh yeah I so I, Jim Schmiedler was the my initial contact with Notre Dame and uh, at the time he was a tenured professor had been around for a little while um, but at the same time uh, Pat Wensing was was joining Notre Dame so he was finishing up a postdoc at uh, MIT in Songbae Kim's lab uh, and he was just getting his feet wet kind of where I am right now mm -hmm. <laughs> getting mm -hmm. getting started at Notre Dame and so uh, 
I, Jim and Pat had a, a collaborative grant proposal that, that hit, and so they were looking for a student to be funded and work on that project. And so that's where I came in, and as I was interested in the project, and I said, that sounds great. Um, I, I don't think I knew at the time how important that co-advising relationship was going to be, um, because professors have very different uh, constraints on their time, very different um, priorities, d depending on whether or not they're pre-tenure or post-tenure. Uh, so I got to see the best of both of those worlds. So I, I got the the wisdom, the uh, insight to how the system works uh, from Jim, who is already tenured, and I also got to see what it was like to start a lab from scratch as, as Pat's first PhD student. Um, so I, I think Pat's experience has really given me a good insight into what I'm I don't want to say up against because it's a fairly negative way to look at it, but <laughs> the challenges I'm likely to face and uh, what's coming up. Yeah, that yeah. does sound like a good experience, seeing uh, kind of how that develops and the spectrum of these things. So you at least have a balance there. Uh, it, it's funny because I, I have a colleague, um, uh, I won't say who she is, but she was co-advised too, but... Um, it was a husband and wife team. Interesting. And it was an uh, interesting experience. Cause she is e extremely good on uh, academia now, but um, the, the story I'd always heard was uh, the way she was successful was if there was something she didn't think she wanted to do, she would just go to the other <laughs> advisor and say, I don't think this is a good idea, and then <laughs> let them battle it out while she went and did her thing. But... Uh, so I guess there's there's pluses and minuses to each each type of co-advisement, but it sounds like that was really good experience. Yeah, I, I have definitely heard other stories where the the co-advising relationship was not so great. Mm -hmm. um, I I definitely think it would have been a very different experience if Jim and Pat hadn't been as on the same page as they were. Um, so there were often I I don't even know if ever there was a situation where they weren't at least mostly in agreement already. Um, so I never had to manage that awkward situation where you're, you can either please one advisor or the other, but not mm -hmm. both. Um, so yeah, I'll caveat that for anyone thinking about an advising, co-advising relationship. So when you started the program, uh, you went straight into the PhD program? I did, yeah. 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 <laughs> so what was... What was it like the first year navigating through that classes, the research? I don't know if you were, I think you had some involvement with the TA and education side too. So what was the first year like? The first year was hard. It was really hard. Um, I, at, at any school, every school has their own way of doing things. And I think a lot of times that kind of flavor of doing things comes out in the classes that students experience. And I, um, I think some of the courses I took at Notre Dame uh, pushed on some of my maybe linear algebra weaknesses um, that made it difficult. And so I I was spending a lot of time on homework. I mean, I can remember assignments spending eight hours sitting at the kitchen table uh, working on a problem or two. Um, 
and then also trying at the same time to make any sort of inroads on research and figuring out what it is I wanted to do with my PhD contribution. So it was, it was definitely, I would say it's probably the, the most um, time-consuming time of my PhD was in the first couple of years where I was trying to do most of my classes and get started on research. Okay. Um, so then after those, you know, you get, you get most of your classes underway, you kind of get an idea on what to do with research, and then um, things start coming together. Usually I, I see the uh, progression is at first you have no idea what you're doing. And you're just trying to uh, get some level, grasp something, so you don't drown. And then you get to that point where you have a few successes. Like in my case, my as a ma- I was a master student in the beginning. Uh, my first publication, it was immediately accepted. I was like, oh, this is no wow. factor. This is going to be easy. Well, <laughs> hubris. <laughs> and so then you start learning after you get a few rejections, but then you start learning more, and then, of course, I think it starts going back down. So you realize there's this these mountains of information and things that you have no idea what you're doing. Yeah. So then in the end, it's, a, it's an interesting balance between you're defending a Ph.D. while... You're not sure if you really have any idea what you're doing. <laughs> that is very well put. <laughs> uh, my dad likes to make an analogy. He says knowledge is like like a bubble around you in that when you have a really small bubble, uh, sorry, I should back up and say that the, the what is on the outside of the bubble represents things you, you don't know or you don't understand, and the inside of the bubble are things that you do know and understand and feel comfortable with and the edge of the bubble is that area where you know what you don't know and so if you have a very small bubble you have very little initial knowledge you you think you know everything because the the edge of what you don't know is really small you you think you got a good grasp of it Uh, it's the growing of that bubble where you realize how much else is out there that you don't understand yeah that is a good way to put it the socratic (laughs) understanding of knowledge um and that we we true knowledge is knowing what we don't know right so um that's which is always a humbling point to arrive at and i but i think that's the ideal point for all of us to arrive at because i mean no matter how much knowledge we absorb um uh, there's always more that we don't agree i agree and uh and i think that's part of what makes life so enriching is that there none of us ever do have it all completely figured out if I can wax philosophical for a moment. But I want to uh, pivot a little bit backwards uh, in dovetailing what we were discussing just a few moments ago. So um, what was it like um, setting up a lab from scratch? Because one of the aims of this podcast originally when we first conceived it was to talk about successes versus failures and the relation between the two. And I imagine um, setting up a lab from scratch probably had a fair deal of both and intersection between where the two were one of the same um so what were some um i guess what were some some shortcomings you noticed that you had to overcome before you really feel felt confident in in uh the work you were doing 
at that time? I mean, kind of a broad question, I know, but yeah, uh, yeah. So, I mean, as far as setting up a lab from scratch, I don't think I've scratched the surface of that yet. <laughs> I'm, I am I mean, still very much getting started. Yes, well. Even if I back up when you were at Notre Dame, you, sure. you, you were co-advised. So when you come in, you know, with the senior advisor, I assume he probably had lab that's been set up. So um, did your young co-advisor, were, obviously they were working as a team really well, but um, were there parts of that where you got experience helping him set up his lab? Yeah, there, there were maybe sometimes experiences of of challenges that I observed but wasn't party to as as the student uh, and that helped me a lot I think so there there are always going to be challenges with uh, hiring and employing anyone and so there are challenges of finding the right student to do the job that you're you're trying to get done in your lab I think that was one thing that I have observed in the past um, as more from the student perspective in that experience, I I got a lot more hands-on experience with uh, getting equipment up and running. Uh, so one of the things that I really had to get rolling in order to do the experiments that I wanted to do was uh, uh, Pat has this huge treadmill in his lab because he, he wants to look at quadrupeds that are moving really quickly, so galloping, and you need space on either side. It's a huge treadmill. And he... He didn't exactly have it set up for the robots quite yet, and I needed to use it for my human subjects research. Uh, so I needed to figure out not only just how to turn it on and turn it off, which you would think is uh, the press of a button, but <laughs> when you're talking about a research platform, it's not always quite that simple, uh, but also controlling exactly what speed was running at, at a given time. And so I, I am kind of proud of and am glad that I have the scripts still, uh, of what it took to, to get some of that equipment running the way that I wanted it to. Um, another thing at that same time, so I, I did an experiment in the past with this X-Sense motion capture suit that we've talked about previously. Um, so I needed to time-synchronize my data uh, between what was coming in from the motion capture suit and the speed of the treadmill at that time. And so learning how to synchronize time signals and, and get everything collected. Um, that that was a challenge that I had to overcome and that I, I now am, I think, more prepared to address uh, getting my own hardware started. Okay. So you <clears throat> successful there, mm -hmm. successfully defend the PhD, and then I'm trying to remember the timeline between starting to talk to <clears throat> family FSU and then postdoc opportunities. So remind me on how all that evolved <laughs> from your from your side. Yeah, and remind me too because I was completely out of the loop mm. on uh, on those discussions. So yeah, well, so it was before I defended the PhD. Uh, it's now I can't remember whether it was the fall or spring semester of that last last year. It was probably fall, I think, when you're really sending out applications and trying to figure out which direction you're trying to go, whether you're trying to find a postdoc or whether you're trying to start as a professor. Um, I, I had in mind that I really wanted to do a, a postdoc uh, just to have a chance to, you know, the way, the way I see it is somewhat of like a half step between being a graduate student and being a professor. You get uh, a few added responsibilities, um, 
you've been around the block before, but it gives you a chance to practice some of your skills. Um, so it I, I gives really gives you a little time stuff. to think about what you want to do besides yes. the grind of I got to get this dissertation out. Right, right. So I was looking for a postdoc, but I I wasn't entirely sure uh, whether the postdoc was absolutely necessary or not, and so I was also putting out uh, applications for assistant professorships. So this was all happening at the same time. I would have an interview for a postdoc, and then I would go do an interview for an assistant professor position, which was a whole experience (laughs) that we could go on for days. Uh, But I think, I forget which one I decided on first. I I think I decided on the postdoc first at UT Austin, and then very shortly after, I got the offer from FAMU FSU, and we needed to negotiate my start date because I, FAMU FSU needed me to start, I, I think like the, the start of the next calendar year or within the same calendar year or something like that. But I, I was adamant about doing this postdoc. So we had this interesting arrangement where I would actually start as a professor at, at FAMU FSU while I was still at, at UT Austin. So there was some overlap time of a few months. It ended up being a very short postdoc uh, but I, I'm really grateful for that experience because I, I was able to get some things started uh, that just inevitably take a really long amount of time. So one of those things is ordering equipment. Thank you, Neil. <laughs> uh, ordering equipment, especially post-COVID with the supply chain issues, you can order some of these really big equipment pieces like a big treadmill and, and you won't get it for a year, Six, not possibly. Months, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, very long time. Some of this is related to uh, the shortage of microchips and other raw materials, and and, and um, I think there's a there's also a labor component and uh, logistics components with right. you know how who's who's driving the trucks and how are we going to get it there and um, yeah no I mean a lot of these things that people think are just pushing a button and making things happen I mean uh, research obviously uh, doesn't it doesn't happen in a vacuum and it doesn't happen overnight. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's very longitudinal, and you've been very patient while, while waiting for all this stuff to arrive. But I'm, I'm hopeful that we are, we've gotten you a little bit closer toward um, being able to um, conduct the research you've set out to do here. You know, so strategically, I, I wish I could take credit for that one. It seems like it's worked out nicely, right? <clears throat> Let you do some research, postdoc. We'll start ordering your equipment, and you'll yep. hit the ground running uh, when you get here. Uh, I don't know if I can officially take credit for that. Sometimes things just happen, but I, I think it yeah. worked out for the best. And you start to learn in academia, everything's negotiable. And so um seems like it's worked out for the best so far. I couldn't be more thrilled, to be honest, with how it oh. worked out. <laughs> it's Well, that, that warms my heart to hear. I mean... <laughs> getting positive feedback um, from students means a lot, but from faculty in some sense it means even more. <laughs> so well, Maybe I should say these things more often. Sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. You, you, you've, always, you, you've always been very gracious, and it's not needed or expected, but it is very affirming from someone on my side, on the staff side, to know that we are making um, some impact um, for uh, uh, things that are larger than ourselves. So... So as you get everything set up, what's um, what's the first thing you're going to have grad students tackle? So I, I have already been working with some students who have been just working on some some background work that will need to be started before I can start applying for 
grants along the lines of some projects that I have in mind. Um, right now, the student who is working with me most closely is helping me uh, draft an IRB protocol application. Um, so every every IRB, and I, I should say this is an institutional review board, which is the, the set of people who decide whether or not your research is is ethical in terms of human subjects. Yeah, which are extraordinarily, I wouldn't say important and necessary, but not not the fun part of trying to get things going. They're trying to make sure you're not working on Frankenstein's monster. Right. Right. (laughs) I I think they're incredibly important, and I I think it is... um, Yeah, it's a goal of mine to have a strong relationship with our IRB, uh, one where there's... You know, mutual trust that I am. I am also thinking very carefully about the safety and, uh, you know, ethics regarding my experiments with humans, and and also that they are also helping me think along those lines and, and making sure that everything is above board. Um, it, it's vital to my research. You can't publish on an experiment that has not been IRB approved. So this is something we haven't really had much of an experience to talk about on the podcast before. I mean, what are what are some some components or variables to keep in mind uh, regarding human subjects uh, review? Because that's not something that I've ever really had anything to deal with. And um, I guess what are some some things, some basic things uh, that someone in your shoes has to keep in mind um, before proceeding with human subjects? Yeah, yeah. I think I think the one that people mostly think about is the actual safety of your experiment. So if I'm going to have someone interact with a robot, how do I make sure the robot's not going to, you know, swing out its arm and hurt someone? Um, but that's actually that is a big part of it. But there are lots of other concerns that may not be as obvious. And and one of the big ones right now is privacy. So how do you ensure that that the data that you collect on an individual, which may be identifying, mean that meaning that based on the data that you've collected, you can tell exactly which individual right. you're referring to. How do you keep that information safe and from, from accidentally getting out to the wrong people? Um, so, so privacy is a big one, the safety of the experiment. Um, I was going to say something else. I forget where I was going. But um, Well, I'm also curious, uh, a very naive question. Um, when you're developing this IRB, who's going to be in the exoskeleton? Is it students? How do you, how do you recruit <laughs> your subjects? Uh, there's volunteers. An, yeah. There's an kind of an ongoing joke. Yeah, it, it really is volunteers. It's people who, you know, you get the research out, so you s- usually develop a flyer that's, again, been IRB approved. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to say the informed consent is another mm. uh, big issue for the IRB. Um but you, you get out this flyer that ex- explains what experiment you're doing, why you want them to come and, and do what you're doing. Um, and more often than not, you're putting up those flyers in College of Engineering buildings where students in the College of Engineering are are matriculating. So, yeah, there's an ongoing joke that, the, that most of the data that is available on the Internet and to researchers like us are, are graduate students doing doing our experiments. Yeah, I remember we had that discussion at IHMC. Most of this data is college students, it which is. is not the general population. Uh, but that's where most of the research happens. So I guess it's it's not easy to get volunteers elsewhere. I, I will say, 
it is kind of, yes, it is low-hanging fruit because these are the individuals who are most interested in your work. They're around your lab and excited about engineering in general. Um, and yes, for able-bodied human subject testing, they, they are our go-to. Um, but when you start involving uh, populations of individuals with disabilities, you, you do have to go out into the real world and find these people, and that can be a challenge, um, especially if you're doing research with a population that is small. Well, I also understand that you gave a talk recently. I, I got the slides forwarded to me yesterday. Um, and this uh, relates to one of them uh, regarding the control concern differences between rehabilitative human-robot interactions and compensatory uh, human-robot interactions. So I, I think that ties into that. Um, I guess how do you test for each one? Um, you, uh, like you said, you have to go out into the, the real world and, and find some willing volunteers. But, I mean, how do you pitch that, I guess, is my question. <laughs> uh, yeah, so maybe I can bring it back to an example from my graduate work with the ExoGT. Uh, one of the benefits of our collaboration with ExoBionics was that they have this cohort of... Uh, of individuals with spinal cord injuries who had been working with the company to test their technology from the get-go. Um, and so just having that contact information was huge. But when I actually started talking with these individuals who were coming in to do my own experiment, they were super excited about the chance to use the technology. Oh, wow. Um, so just just the act of interacting with the device, you get, you get quite a few physical benefits just from using it so the um, importance of being in an upright posture it helps with a, a number of things including bladder control and um, the aspect of exercise with the device helps um, all sorts of things and these these subjects were explaining to me that they feel the effects of being in an experiment like that they feel the positive effects for weeks after which it was just incredible to me wow so, yeah, so finding the individuals in the right population can sometimes be a challenge, but the nature of the technology that we're trying to develop can work in our favor in that mm -hmm. people are excited to, mm -hmm. to really help with the progression of, the, of this technology. Well, that's got to be super affirming for you, too. Oh, it was incredible. Yeah. It was incredible. I, was, I had just finished my first year at Notre Dame, my first full year of classes. I had developed just enough of a research idea that I knew what data I wanted to collect. So I went out to California and spent three months actually interacting with the people for whom this technology matters most. And it was so incredibly motivating to see someone come into the building in a wheel wheelchair and then get in this device that I had been working with uh, and would continue to work with and then be able to stand up and walk around a room and just to see the effect of that experience light up their face. That I think that gave me enough gas to get through the PhD. Um, mm -hmm. Just when yeah. your work really and truly matters. So I actually have a related question. I think now's the perfect time to ask with that in mind. Now, there is actually a company based out of the UK called Open Bionics. Are you familiar with them? Um, they developed should a, be, but I'm not. <laughs> you know, they developed a, a product called the Hero Arm, which is available at market. It's an individualized piece and it is specifically for amputees mm -hmm. and uh, when I was asking you about um, uh, like Neuralink type uh, technology uh, as it inter 
interacts with um, uh, applied prostheses. Um, that's basically what this is. And they actually have it, it, a lot of their marketing. It's very, I think they actually did have, you mentioned Iron Man earlier. <laughs> they actually have one that is modeled after the oh, Iron so Man cool. arm. And I know a lot of your research is primarily focused on bipedal movements. So we're talking more about the legs. Right. Um, they might be uh, a company that may be worth, um, you know, building a rapport with uh, to see if they're because they focus more on um, arm movement uh, and yeah. see if there's any any kind of practical application for a, a kind of a hero leg, something like that in the in the future um, to kind of build on what you've um, learned working with ExoGT in California. I mean, I, I think those kind of collaborations are what's going to uh, what's going to really bear fruit for this specific. Um, type of research in the future um, but it's something to look up if you're not familiar with them because it's sure. super cool um, <laughs> yeah I'll definitely do that yeah just an aside um, Billy you look like you've got a, the wheels turning I was, on your head I was going to ask you know we talked a little bit about you know whether it's uh, people with spinal cord injuries or amputees like, like Neil had mentioned I guess the Maybe the amputee area and prosthetics is more developed, but um, you know, moving forward on the things you're going to look at, I, I was wondering in terms of, you know, it seems like partner with people like the VA would be interesting opportunities to develop these things. Um, so, what what are you thinking in terms of exoskeletons and prosthetics, and what are the challenges, the differences between those, and things Let's you're going to look at? Yeah. Yeah, and I I definitely am interested in both areas and kind of expanding from my PhD work with exos to more of uh human robot interaction in general. So there are in this kind of is fascinating to me the differences and challenges between the two devices. Uh, so with an exoskeleton, you have a human and a robot working in parallel, which we somewhat hinted on earlier where both the human and the robot are applying torques to the exact same joint or degree of freedom. Whereas with the prosthesis, you, you have the robot that is in charge of some of the degrees of freedom and the human in charge of other degrees of freedom. Uh, and and those, that fact manifests in different challenges as far as control is concerned. So with the exoskeleton shared control of a single degree of freedom is very, very difficult to make comfortable and, and useful to the individual. But there is so much interaction, like there's actually f surface area interaction between the human and the robot that I think a, that physical interaction lends itself to a lot more information with respect to what the user is trying to do and their intentions. Whereas with a prosthetic device, the the actual physical overlap between the human and the device is relatively small. So you just essentially have the socket on the individual's stump, and then the rest is the robot, and above is, is the human. So there, I feel like there there could be less information available about the, what the user is trying to accomplish through only that physical connection. Um, but then the control becomes almost slightly a little easier because you don't have to worry about the human applying torque at the same joints that the robot's trying to actuate. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the that things... That made some sense. Yeah, I think, and you've, you know more about this, this uh, impedance control that you mentioned than I do, but I assume it's, you know, getting your stiffness and damping right in a simple sense. And I assume that's, 
a lot of the prosthetic work, but I also wonder about, I don't know about legs, but I know at least for arms there's been some work where there, I think it's a little bit different challenge, right, if you're trying to control hands and things. And I know there's been at least some developments on connecting this with nerves or spinal cord or the brain to control these things. So are there, what, where is that, and are you even thinking about things like that and some of the work you're doing on prosthetics? Yeah, I, I think when you, <coughs> when you limit the problem down to the task of, of walking in particular, some things become much easier because walking is a cyclic task, and so you're, you're trying to do the same thing over and over again. And so I exploited that fact in a lot of my Ph.D. work, whereas with the upper arm movement, it's so unstructured. Like, we're, we generally right. don't do the same thing over and over again. How do you account for just simple things like thumb opposition, you know? I mean, we're, we're talking a, a much broader range of uh, upper limb mobility. Uh, so I, I think limiting or narrowing the focus to lower limb is uh, probably a better, uh, or I don't know about better, but uh, a, a more, um, I, I don't even want to say less ambitious. I don't know what to say. Uh, um <laughs> It's a, a a more reasonable problem to tackle if you're expecting, um, I, I guess, uh, more steady progress. I don't know. Yeah, I think carving off the area that you're most interested in making contributions is is an important task when you go to set up your research lab. Is where do you want your contribution to be, and what is a question that is actually feasible to make progress on? So if you don't limit yourself to one domain or another, it, it can sometimes be really, really hard to, to try and address everything all at once. Uh, so I, I hope that maybe captured what you're, you're trying yeah, to no, say. Yeah, no, I was fumbling in how I <laughs> no, was it's okay. that pretty badly. Oh, no, no, let me check in with you. How are you feeling? We've been chatting for about an hour 15 now. So and we, really? I, feel like we've, I feel like we've been grilling you over here. And I, <laughs> I was trying to have more of it. We always try to have more of an informal conversation than get so consumed with talking shop because we're nerds. <laughs> um, that, uh, yeah. Yeah, doing Hanging good. Hanging in there? Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, let me switch gears a little bit coming back to, I guess, maybe Notre Dame or maybe even Clemson on the education side. So I know you got some experiences, TA, and I, I know at least Clemson has this program because um, so we have another faculty here that's involved with engineering education. So what was that experience like on the education side? Uh, that That's a really fun story for me to tell. I get really excited about teaching. Um, so at Clemson... Uh, maybe I can start from my own experience. So at Clemson, the statics and dynamics courses, which I think at a lot of universities are split into one statics course and one dynamics course. At Clemson, for better or for worse, it is one combined, I think it was a five-credit-hour course, and it, it's pretty intense. Uh, <laughs> it was, I think, one of the really first, maybe mathematically intense courses that I took at Clemson, and I... I had come out of high school as an all-A student, and I was like, I'm going to continue this all-A thing as far as I can get it. And I think, I th believe statics and dynamics was my first B, but I it, it bothered me. That that <laughs> B not only bothered me because it was one of my first, but it was, I, I really enjoyed the top, like the material content, and I wanted to have a really good understanding of it. So after you finish the class, uh, sometimes you... Um, the instructor will come back and ask, do you want a TA? And at Clemson, we have 
I have, we at least uh, we had when I was there, the peer assisted learning program, which is where undergraduates who have done well in a course uh, decide they want to assist in that course in the future, and they they take a class on uh, basically collegiate pedagogy and how learning works and how to assist learning in addition to you know being a part of the course that you're you're assisting with and then also giving um, uh, recitation sessions on the course material and so I decided that I I really wanted to learn this material better um, and, and I so so I leapt in I said okay well the best way to make sure I absolutely understand it is to work with it some more um, and it actually turned out to be a really fantastic experience where I realized that the fact that I didn't coast through the course the first time through is what made me a better uh, learning assistant. Uh, so I had strategies for how I understood the, the topics that can be very confusing, and I had little tricks to get me through parts of problems where I, had, I didn't know where to go next. And it was those strategies that really helped me connect with the students I, I was assisting at the time. And so now fast forward to being here at FAMU FSU, I, uh, I'm really excited. The first, first class I get to teach is dynamics because it harkens back to that, that first class I TA'd in, in undergrad. But we also here at FAMU FSU have the LA program, so the Learning Assistance Program, which is essentially the same program where uh, talented undergraduates get involved with assisting the the cor- a course of their their interest, and so now I get to be the on the other side. I get to be the professor that uh, leverages undergraduate student expertise to make the learning environment more active and uh, interactive and more fun in general. So I'm I'm super excited about. I that. I did not realize you had that shared background too. So that's really neat um, that you can identify with that aspect of our program and how it serves our students and uh, that you have that perspective uh, from the other side. So that, that's, that's really cool. Yep. Um, so, I, again, we're just kind of a general question here. Now that you're here, um, what are your impressions of the college? Oh, I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> yeah. um, I, uh, so in my interviews, I, Jonathan Clark and Christian Hubicki were someone of the the leads in the search committee that were interviewing me, and they have turned about turned out to be invaluable resources uh, in in joining the college. Uh, so any little question that I have, uh, and I'll be honest, it's it's amazing how many questions I have that just seem stupid to me. But I have I have no way of knowing what are the ins and outs of of the bureaucracy of a college that I've never attended. So <laughs> so they've been great in answering all of my questions. They've been super supportive, um, motivating, and, and we have so much overlap in our research interests that I think there, there's plenty of potential for us to collaborate on grants moving forward. Um, I, I haven't met an individual yet who hasn't been super kind and welcoming, and that just makes me all the more excited to be here. Oh, well, we're certainly glad to, to know that that's the case and that we're taking care of you in, uh, in that regard. And um, I think, you know, I've been with the college since 2017, and that's one of the things I've noticed as well. And one of the things that, you know, keeps me getting up in the morning and coming here is the, the people we work with are, we have a really dynamite team, particularly in the department level. Um, love our staff and vast majority of our faculty. <laughs> um, 
uh, students are, are also always wonderful and, and um, uh, they really are a kind of a, um, you, you never know what you're going to get with them, but uh, they keep you on your toes for sure. So um, you're going to go with, speaking of Dr. Hugbicki and Dr. Clark, um, you're going to go to Germany with them soon. Um, I am not on top of that because uh, Pro's been handling all the details of the travel <laughs> and such, but um, what, what more can you tell me about this trip? Um, I don't know anything about it. so Yeah, this is a really cool conference. It's called Dynamic Walking. Uh, oh, right up your alley, of course. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Are uh, you presenting? Or? So at, at this conference, everyone who comes presents. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, they give a oh, short fantastic. talk. So well, what can you tell us about it? Uh, I've never been to Dynamic Walking before, so I can't tell you too much. I think this particular instance or this year of dynamic walking is particularly interesting in its format. Uh, so it's not taking place at just like one individual conference center that you go to every day of the conference. It's actually a, a tour through Germany, so there are a couple of locations. Oh, so you'll be doing some we'll be dynamic doing, walking we'll yourself. Be doing some <laughs> dynamic walking, and I think that. that yeah, was, I think I have a. I think I have a snare drum somewhere. Hang on, was that it? I no. can do it for you. Oh, that's I, it right there. Hang on, one more. There you ah, go. Very good. I've been waiting how many months to use that, Billy? <laughs> oh, uh, almost a year, probably. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, so I am super excited. Um, unfortunately, I have never been overseas before. Uh, I think oh. a lot of graduate students end up getting to go to an international conference or two towards the end of their PhD work, which unfortunately for me was right around when COVID was, was hitting. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these conferences that I normally would have been attending were held online. Right. Um, so actually neither my husband or I, or I have ever been overseas, and we thought this would be a really great chance for us to go. Yeah. Oh, how serendipitous. That's so awesome, though, yeah. that you, you finally... Get this, and, and you're getting it now much later in your career than, like you said, than, than, than most uh, uh, people would usually start get to get that experience right. at, at the grad level or the postdoc level. And, and uh, yeah, freaking COVID yep. kind of Ruined set everything. us back in a lot of ways. But I'm so glad to know that we're able to help give that experience at the college level. And so, what city in Germany is it? It's it's starting in Munich. But okay. it's it's gonna travel from what I understand a little southeast and then towards the west and then back up to Munich. Oh, that's okay. so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but staying in Germany, it sounds yes. like you could end up in Austria if you're not careful. But uh, <laughs> right, if we get lost. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That yeah. should be fun. I mean, I I had a really lucky experience of. Um, my PhD advisor had a program with uh, some colleagues in Germany, um, Darmstadt, just south of Frankfurt. And so it was an interesting experience going there. I spent like at least a semester in an undergrad German class, at least learned some German cool. before I went over. Uh, at least maybe, the, maybe you'll have to tutor us a little the, bit. <laughs> the way it's taught, in, you know, your German one is. Well, learning some vocab and then grammar and all this so i thought okay i know enough to to get there and they told me how to get from frankfurt to darmstadt on these buses whatever and so i figured i'd be able to navigate with at least the german i knew and so i made it to from frankfurt on a bus to darmstadt after um you know long flight um pretty tired I could not figure out where to find this bus. And, you know, I at least knew I needed to be punctual. 
that's one interesting thing about the uh, German culture is they're pretty punctual. I was like, man, I'm going to be late. I don't know where this bus is. The one f- group of folks that didn't speak better English than me in Germany were the bus drivers. <laughs> so that didn't go anywhere. <laughs> so I ended up having to walk. You know, fortunately in Germany, things are pretty close by, so you can walk, although it was a little, uh, I was super late. So I get there, and I'm like, um, I'm so sorry. It's the first time I've met them in person. Sorry, I'm late. I couldn't figure out where this bus is, and they just start laughing. <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah, half our bus drivers are on strike, so the bus went <laughs> oh, <on>. no. <laughs> The cards were stacked against you. Yeah, yeah. So um, I would say at least after three months, I could order beer and donor kebabs without them switching to English. So the essentials, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it took a little while, but um, it should be fun. I'm so. excited. I won't have quite that long to settle in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Like a week or less, but... but uh, yeah, but yeah it'll be fun. We're really excited. Yeah. I think it'll be a great trip. And, and it's really cool that we... Uh, kind of have a tour de force coming from FAMU FSU. And, mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm. I think that's the fun part about yeah. dynamic walking is that it combines those individuals looking at more autonomous bipedal walking with those of us looking at a combination of human and robot walking. Um, so, yeah, so this conference is um, uh, applicable for Dr. Clark's work and Dr. Hubicki's work. So the three mm-hmm. of us, I think, are going to mm-hmm. hopefully make a strong impression in Germany. <laughs> Do you know how, how big the conference is? Yes, it is capped at 100 people. Okay. Oh, tiny. wow, so that's pretty small. Right. That's very small. I know. I'm used to going to ICRA, which is a huge robotics right. conference, and it's just thousands. Was so that the one that was in Kyoto last year or year before last? I, I don't remember. I wasn't at the most recent one, so <coughs> you just said I you said you haven't been remember. overseas, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, that one's a huge conference. That has thousands of people, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it's a so. lot. So it's a complete, I'm assuming it's a completely different feeling going, <laughs> for, like a huge converse, conference versus more of a small group feel. Right. Well, my hope for you there is that, like you say, it's kind of more of a, the same way we were talking about individualized learning um, earlier. I, I hope this is kind of the professional equivalent of that, where you get a lot of more, more of an intimate uh, FaceTime with, with colleagues within your field and, and actually get some one-on-one talks with, uh, you know, people you may actually want to collaborate with and, yeah, uh, I, in the future. So uh, we need to get you some business cards printed if we haven't gotten them yet. <laughs> when, when do you leave? Uh, June 10th. June 10th. Uh, we may actually have time to do that before. I'll, oh, I'll talk to Tisha great. once we convene and see about getting you some cards so That'd we can, uh, so that we can, we, we can spread the word overseas. Yeah. I've, I've heard that this venue is particularly good about, uh, uh, engendering these types of conversations of, uh, letting you go down the technical rabbit hole with someone that you've just met or someone who is in a slightly different field than you. So I, I think a lot of really fun ideas uh, and collaborations pop up from experiences like that. So I'm I'm super excited. Yeah, I know the, the smaller conferences like Gordon conferences, they're, they're done really well because it's not all day technical talks and two questions at the end there's a lot of discussion time so hopefully you get some of that that's usually where you get all the valuable information yeah it, and it sounds like some of this discussion time is going to be touring castles nice change of scenery I right mean, i mean who can complain right, right? Yep. yeah we had one um it wasn't gordon conference but something similar uh banff i'm forgetting Ooh. the exact acronym 
But, uh, you know, they do, you've probably heard of it, there's one in Canada and one in Mexico. We had one in Mexico, and so it was really small. It was probably 10 to 20 people for, you know, several-day conference, and so we got to travel to a few places, like uh, some of the pyramids there. I just remember a colleague of mine from Caltech, originally from India, we were on the bus, and uh, we're coming along, and... There was um, a motorcycle, man and wife, on it, and uh, they had one kid on the back, one on the front, <laughs> two kids on the side. And I'm telling, I'm telling my colleague, I was like, "Check this out," and he's like, oh, "I'm not impressed." Six so it's just standard, on a standard in India, but uh, <laughs> I mean, I was pretty impressed. They packed them all on there. But, um, yeah, those times when you can get away from the technical talks and just just have discussions on research or whatever is always usually productive. There's usually some crazy idea that turns out was not so crazy after all and turned into something. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really the, the, the fun part of research mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is having those spitballing ideas. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and... I think again from the outside looking in, if, uh, and this is the, this is the value of going to these conferences and having business travel, um, that I, I think is lost on people who are stuck in their offices all day. Which is why I'm a big proponent of um, professional development for staff as well, because uh, the limited experience I have on that has been very enriching for me um, on the administrative side as well. So one thing I want to encourage the college to do more is to provide more. Um, development opportunities for for people because it's true there's a mark twain quote about travel and how um actually i'll have to look it up because i'm going to bungle it but uh basically about how we shouldn't spend our days vegetating in one corner let me see mark twain uh, i thought you were about to say it was the one where the the more i meet people i learn i like my dog a lot better (laughs) Uh, he said, it wasn't that one. No, it wasn't that one. He <laughs> said, broad wholesome, charitable, uh, ch- broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And I, I, I really believe that, and as I said, that's something to do with the change of scenery. It resets your mind um, to the task at hand. And it really, uh, oftentimes when we are stuck in our offices, we're, we're so focused on the minutia of where we're at. And I mean, I mean, I know poor Billy here can attest that, you know, uh, part of being uh, the, the uh, department chair uh, requires a certain level of sacrifice on the research end. And that's regrettable that, you know, so it's good that you're going to, for instance, get to go to Eglin um, for the, the next couple of months and get to actually dive into um, you know where your passions lie more uh, than because I, I know um, as much as I know you love doing these assignment of responsibility forms and faculty evaluations I'm, I'm glad that you're going to get to set that aside for a little bit yeah, yeah <laughs> think about something else go get to work with a group that blows up stuff so yeah that's that's my hey. true calling in engineering see stuff well, that's, what that's what i'm doing this weekend going to the range and get shoot some guns for for memorial day i'm gonna pour one out for the boys we left uh who left us overseas yeah. um yeah yeah for sure yeah but um 
Uh, sorry, we're completely on a tangent now. So, uh, <laughs> did you have any other thoughts, Billy, to bring us back on uh, on track, um, or have I completely imploded that at this point? So no, I well, I'm I'm curious when you know with coming back on the education side, yeah. the experience you have, what um, and then I I think you took the the workshop with with Cat, yep. uh, Center of Advancement of Teaching, to kind of recalibrate the things that you learned at Clemson. Yep. yep. So what are you thinking in in your first class? Uh, what what plans do you have? Any exciting things you're thinking about? Yeah, I, I think the the overall format of the class. I and I don't know how it's been traditionally taught. So I not speaking from like I want to change everything, um, mm-hmm. but I, I definitely want to move away from the instructor at a lectern talking at students model towards the active learning model where students get a chance in class to start practicing the skills that they're attempting to learn so that they can get really fast feedback from those of us who have been through the course before, so including LAs and and myself. Um, I'm really excited to be a part of that. I think, uh, I don't think I'll be perfect at it the first time around. I think I will... um, try some really neat things and see what works and what doesn't. Um, I think the students are usually receptive to that. As long as you, you know, get feedback, um, you know, try to, I mean, there's several things that I try to do at the beginning to make sure that it's just a good environment for learning so that they feel comfortable um, opening up and discussing things and some level of encouragement because, like I'd mentioned at the beginning, just coming out of kindergarten, I couldn't pass an aptitude test. And then uh, same thing, SAT and barely getting into Georgia Tech grad school after taking GRE multiple times. And so there's multiple paths to be successful. And so at a college like this with two universities, there's even... I say from the mathematics side, uh, even larger Hilbert space of paths uh, to geek out a little bit on ways that you can become successful. And so um, figuring out how to do that with one professor is not an easy task. I, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up a lot of, a lot of that, those points. Um, yeah, if we're going back to the childhood experience of not being the person who completely understands immediately. What also came with that was kind of this chip on my shoulder that maybe I'm not smart enough to do these things that I'm really excited about. And that that's unfortunate. I would never want that to be the impression that any student got from interacting with me. Um, and so I, that is one of the things that I want to instill in, in my students in the, in the coming years is that if you want to do this badly enough, you, you can make it happen. There, you, can, you set your mind to it and you can make it happen. Um, and I, I'm especially excited for the opportunity to be in front of students as a woman in academia um, and, and be able to share some of my experience and, and just be a role model of, of what it looks like for a woman to be a professor. Um, 
I, I'm not, I don't want to like push that every day in class, but just, just having that be the experience I think will be interesting. Well, maybe that's something to talk about if we can for, sure. for a brief moment, because it just dawned on me, I think you might be the first woman we've had on the podcast, and that's not, that was not by design. Um, <laughs> we certainly want, we, if, if anything, the opposite is true. We would, if there's any women engineers out there listening that, that want to come on the podcast, yeah. we are more than happy to, to have you, but um, I think that the dearth of women in engineering does speak to um, that very fact. I mean, we, we it has kind of traditionally been a boys' club. So, would you be willing to speak to your experience as a woman, having navigated those muddy waters <laughs> over the years, and 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 like what specific challenges have you felt that you've had to overcome to get? to attain the success that you have today. And um, is there any advice or any lessons that you'd like to share with fellow women who uh, women in STEM or women who, who, who may be um, uh, vacillating on whether or not they want to go into STEM because of cultural issues that prevail. Um, I think you know what I'm talking about. So well, what are your thoughts on that? I, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm then we, entirely we, sure where uh, to start. We've got but, some time, so let, let's hear um, it. Yeah, so I, I think I wrote about this in, in one of my application essays for this position. Um, starting out as a, as a woman who is interested in, in science and math and engineering, I, I thought the glass ceiling was broken. I thought like all of the hurdles were gone. Like women are out there doing incredible things in science and engineering, math and technology. Um, and that view has changed the further I've gone up the academic ladder. Uh, and I, when I speak from my own personal experience, I think a lot of the challenges that I met, I sometimes have a hard time differentiating between whether those were because of my own um, anxieties and self-doubt or whether that is a result of, you know, being the gender that I am. Although I do think some of the thought processes that I have are more likely to happen in women than in men. Um, so I, I don't want to speak for anyone else but myself, but um, I... Yeah, there were, uh, basically the first hint that I got that there was still an issue is just seeing women disappear around me as I mo- moved up. So undergrad, I had several really great female friends. Uh, no, sorry, I, in, in high school I had, a lot, I had a handful of female friends who were also interested in science, math, technology, um, maybe less so in engineering for some reason. Um, but then moving to undergrad, the experience that I like to use as an example is our undergraduate mechanical engineering labs, which they broke down into fairly small, um, I guess you could say pods of students. Uh, and in every single one of them, you have these all, I think at least for three years of your, your time as an engineering student. Um, I was the only woman in my section. And I'm not sure if that was by design or if that was just statistically the draw that happened, but I was, I was amazed that I was in a room as the only woman um, and that did not get better moving from undergraduate into graduate school. Uh, I remained the only woman in my lab until my last, is either my last year or my last semester when two, two new female graduate students joined, uh, but still ending up just like, where are the women? Um, and I, I feel like back maybe the generation before me, there were maybe easier things happening 
that were, uh, sorry, not easier things happening, things happening that it was easier to point a finger at and say that's why we don't have women in STEM. And I think um, the reasons now have become murkier, whether it's like a, a social expectation of what you know women do or whether it's just the nature of the job of being an academic as a woman is somewhat less friendly to the things that women really want to prioritize at specific times of their life. Um, So I don't feel like at any point there was this curmudgeonly old man who said, no, you shouldn't be here, you can't do this, you're not smart enough, you're a woman. I didn't have that experience, so it's, it's harder to speak about exactly what tells me that there's still an issue. Does that make any sense? Oh, it does. What do you think, Billy? I mean, you've you've been in this. Mm-hmm. You've been working in academia for. Get, <laughs> I'm not going to say how long, but uh, long enough to I'm sure have noticed these same patterns. Um, yeah, I think it's a difficult problem. I think you kind of talked around that as it's not easy to pinpoint one particular or a few particular things to rectify this. I mean, at least from my experience, there was a a PhD student, female, in in our group, a year or two older than me, and I never saw her as being female. She was just really good at engineering. (laughs) And um, I had many other cases like that. I I had a, um, a student that just a uh, female student, a uh, smart um, fellowship um, winner that graduated a year or two ago and extremely good. I never thought of her as female. Um, oh, I'm sure you thought of her as female, but maybe I mean, perhaps it wasn't relevant to yeah, the, it, the it matter never, at hand. Yeah, it I, never I actually really want to make a comment on that because I, I've heard you make that comment before, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I... I think we're almost at a, at a... So there was a time when it was good to not see people as like being a woman because possibly being a woman was a negative for being in your position. But I hope that we're moving to an area where we can celebrate the fact that someone is a woman in engineering because we bring unique and valuable experiences to the table that no one other than a woman can. Which is the essence of why I... I kind of pressed you on this question because I, I do I mean I, I I believe in the mission of this college and one thing that I'm getting on a tangent for a moment but I'm going to relate back to this in a second um, when I first came here and you know six years ago one of the things that impressed me so much about it was the level of was the amount of diversity that I, I saw I mean we have people from so many different backgrounds and um, have you been here I mean you, you I know you only permanently got here uh, uh, just a few weeks back now yeah. but you've been here during the the fall or spring semesters and seeing like the the vibrancy and how much in uh, diversity of our students and our student body and there are uh, you wouldn't think uh, especially if you look at the undergrad level um, that there weren't women in STEM because it seems pretty evenly dispersed between men and women uh, I see just as many young women as I do young men um, wandering these halls um, I think it depends yeah. on which department that pretty that heavily may be skewed if you truly look at the statistics it's pretty heavily skewed toward male well, i know that's absolutely the case <laughs> um when you get to the faculty level that certainly becomes clearer yeah, um, i think it's students too well, maybe more of the female students are more proactive and engaged like i 
So coming back to your, your comment, and I, I still struggle with this, but I, I think I'd also mention that I've, I've mentioned a lot of students in Whimsy as women in uh, science, math, and engineering. And I always tell everyone... Is it really called Whimsy? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, they've always been top-of-the-line students, regardless of their... Uh, whether they're male or female, uh, or the fact that they are female. Um, so I've always wondered, you know, sh- is it, should I acknowledge that? Or they're, they're just better than most of the students I get. Uh, and so I've always kind of looked at it that way because I, I didn't want to use that as a, uh, a measure, whether that's good or bad. We, we should certainly celebrate it because um, there are probably other hurdles that I have no idea about to be successful, you know, um, just because differences that I'm unaware of. Um, it's, it's interesting that you say that because they're, they're, and I don't have the right citations or I couldn't even point you to the right book, but I know there's research that has looked at uh, why it is the fact that the women that do uh pursue these degrees are basically the top of the line Hmm. and I think it comes back to this idea that women tend to only pursue things that they know they can be successful at and at least in my own experience the process from getting from undergrad to where I am now was a process of doing a lot of things that I had no idea if I could be successful at and that was incredibly challenging for me um so yeah. I, I, do, I actually think it's a problem that only the highest achieving women are the ones that are yeah. getting through right now. Yeah, and that brings up one thing that we've, we've tried to do better at as recruiting to faculty. Because I, I was at some workshop, some other department chairs, and they had two, um, two faculty searches going on at the same time. One was a very specific one in this area of, I think it was aerodynamics, and so they had that in the advertisement. And then they had a separate one that was just general mechanical engineering. Mm -hmm. And they had all these applicants in these two pools, and they noticed, oh, there's this female applicant in this general one that I think is very applicable to the um, very specific one. And so one hypothesis is that you know, um, male candidates will look at this specific thing, and if they're in the ballpark, <laughs> there's type A person, I was like, yeah, I'm good enough, I'm better than everyone else. But the thought was a female candidate is going to look and say, well, I need to make sure that I'm competent in all these areas to compete, so maybe I don't hit this one out of four, I'm not going to apply. Right, right. They say that that women only apply when they meet all of the criteria, whereas men will apply if they meet some of the criteria. Yeah. Yeah. I have to wonder if there's any kind of underlying cultural um, expectations that factor into why that is, why that continues to be a recurring feature. Um, I don't know if that's just how. Uh, you know, again, we're getting into the weeds a little bit, but how Western society specifically rears women, and I don't know if there's anything to do with long-standing gender roles when it comes to that. Um, there's a lot to unpack, obviously, but um, I mean, I, I understand that this is a. I recognize it as a problem because we do want. Um, we even in in the scientific realm, we we, we want 
uh, a, a plurality of the population to be represented so that we, we know that we're getting a, a, a kind of a fuller um, uh, sample size of the, the greater population. So we, it just kind of is one of those things where we, um, we, we obviously recognize that there's work to be done, but um, I'm not sure that anyone has really cracked the code as to um, uh, a, a viable uh, all, all inclusive solution to this problem, right. but it we is. are working on it. We know it's an issue. Um, I, I want to say, would you say it's getting better at least in your lifetime? Or I don't know if I can say that it has. Okay, I mean, I'm just. I mean, I wasn't expecting. A, I just. I was. I was just curious because. Uh, um, I I want to say, I've heard of. Um, several statistics that have shown that we've kind of stagnated in progress towards that huh. goal. And I I think that reflects my own experience. I, I wanted to go back to a point you made that sometimes it, we can want to go back and look at Western culture and point our finger at you know the way that things have traditionally happened in the family unit. But I, I have some of a, a, a bias in my own experience, I think, because I, I don't know that I was raised like a traditional right. woman. Like, my family was the most supportive of my development as anything that I w- possibly set my mind to that I could ask for. My dad, my brother, my mom, everyone supported my growth as as a creator uh, in, in the engineer, engineering field. In fact, my, my dad just sent me a, a video of a new commercial. I think it was put out by, it's either Lowe's or Home Depot, and the theme is... Uh, if you give a girl a power tool, uh, and they they said that how it, it can open windows to all sorts of uh, STEM activities in the future, and my dad sent it to me. He was like, "This is what it was like raising you," <laughs> and I, I remember getting my first power drill at Christmas at like age eleven or something. But yeah, I had I had this kind of quintessentially perfect experience of being raised to do whatever I wanted to do, regardless of the fact oh. that I was a woman. And, and I, you're here. So there is something to speak to that. So. There is, there um. is, but I still think that I have embodied some of these similar experiences of self doubt and, uh. and what we were just talking about, like the not wanting to apply for something unless you think you absolutely have it in the bag. I've experienced all that regardless of my upbringing. So there was some study I heard about, uh, this was back in the 1930s, this psychological experiment, you know, back where I don't think there was any IRBs, you could do <laughs> almost anything. And this was on, um, you know, I listened to the Jocko podcast quite a bit, and it's the one I mentioned, this Extreme Ownership book. And so there was this horrible study, I think they call it the Monster Study, I don't know if you all have heard of this, but um, they took some kids and... Some of them had speech impediment, and they, and I don't remember the full story. Maybe someone will fact check me after this. Some of our viewers will get back to me. But um, some of them had speech impediments, and um, they told them, you know, okay, you've got this serious thing going on, and this is going to be a big problem for you. Um, And, of course, they didn't get any better. I, I think they took a separate group and said, okay, we're going to work with you and, and help you through this. This is just something that's not a big factor. People deal with this all the time, and we'll help you train. And I think that group got better. What was really interesting is they took a control group that had no speech impediment, and they said, 
all right, we've noticed some speech patterns that are predictors that you're going to have these stuttering problems later in life, and you're just going to have to figure out how to deal with that. They started having stuttering problems after that, and eventually they just had to stop the program, and who was running it, they couldn't reverse it. It was, wow. it was the worst thing I've ever heard of wow. in a psychological study. Um, so it just shows that you, you really have to be careful when you're talking to these students to, you know, give them encouragement, tell them, hey, you know, I couldn't figure out these things either when I was here, and here are the things you have to go and do. And sometimes it's hard work, but you just have to put in the hard work, and you'll get through it. Otherwise, they're just going to move on. Uh, certainly really speaks to the impact of words and mm-hmm. going back to the preamble of this conversation we were talking about you know the foibles of the public school system you know maybe if i had been encouraged more as a as a child uh, to be you know to excel at mathematics and been spoken to in a way that connected with me um maybe i could have done it better or had a, had a, a so it does um I, th- I think this kind of gets into a nature v. nurture question, um, if we can tie it to the, the current discussion, um, and, and whether or uh, you have the, on one hand, you have a bioessentialist view, and then the other is the sociological, and the truth is somewhere between them, <laughs> I think, uh, as it relates to this issue. But um, all I'll say on this is that um, we love women in STEM. We realize that they have not always gotten a fair shake. We're, we're doing everything we can to try to rectify that. I hope these kind of conversations can help to steer the course. I think these are necessary conversations to have. Um, and, and, and hopefully it does improve and in, both in your own experience, uh, Taylor, and for that of um, our, our, our women students and, and you know, fellow faculty and colleagues. Um, I, 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 I really believe that um, addressing this is going to be the first step to coming to a, a viable solution, um, which again, I don't think anyone seems to have right now. Well, but we're super glad to have you, uh, and not just because you're a woman. That's that's a, <laughs> if anything, like again, I didn't. We were three quarters through this podcast before I even <laughs> realized, like, oh yeah, I don't think we've spoken to a, a, a woman on this uh, channel before. Yeah. So um, it's it, it and what a, uh, a a a pleasant relief it is to to be able to do that. So. Yeah, so hopefully you'll you'll be able to recruit some good students from your dynamics class and keep them here, get them in your lab, and put <laughs> them to so. work. Hoping yeah. so, yeah. Well, I know you're at a, a time premium here. I've been mindful of that. Um, but before before we part, uh, do you have any final thoughts? Any any burning questions for us, or any any anything that you really want? prospective students to hear uh, about our program, about what your work, um, anything that came to mind that you wanted to talk about um, when, we, when we twisted your arm to come on this thing? <laughs> uh, I think the main thing is that I am looking for students uh, to come do research with me, and so I'm really excited to find some students who are also excited about uh, humans and locomotion and robotics. So if that's you... Uh, come talk to me. Email me. Uh, will my email be available? We'll put it in the show links, right? Uh, sure. sure, we could do that. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm figure it out. <laughs> I, 
think I have yeah. enough technology skills. We'll get that in there. Sweet. Awesome. So, I mean, aside from that, I think this was a really fun discussion. And yeah, for sure. I, I hope it doesn't end here because I think we hinted on a lot of different topics that I think will be ongoing. Yeah, yeah for well, sure. This does not have to be the last time you're on our podcast, too, and I hope it isn't. <laughs> so I hope we get to do this again. Uh, it'd be great to have you on again. Maybe we could also bring in some of your, your fellow robotics colleagues. and Yeah, or maybe one of your students. That would be even that would be awesome. Yeah. That would be beautiful. Yeah. Um, well, that's all I got, folks. Uh, Billy, any final thoughts? No. All Thanks right. for coming on. Enjoyed Thank you it. so much for having me. Thank you so much, Taylor. This has been a lot of fun. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Mechanically Incorrect is a production of the FAMU FSU College of Engineering in Tallahassee, Florida. Music by Blue Wave Theory. To stay up to date with content, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Write to us. Please send questions or suggestions for episodes to ncoker at eng.famu.fsu.edu with the word podcast in the subject line. I'm Neil Coker. Thanks for listening.